0: team, I was just having a flashback sitting there, March 31st, 1986 was my very first Sunday at Calvary Evangelical Free Church in Stoughton, and my mind just drifted back there. Tomorrow is April Fool's, and summer, spring is coming, so there's hope, everyone. Um, April 28th, there's going to be a town hall meeting at the bridge offices, 3 p.m., And that's not a decision making meeting. That is a a, a meeting for everybody who calls a bridge their church home. And we want to have a conversation about our plans for next steps at the bridge. So please save the date. We're looking forward to that time with you. Bridge kids, thanks. You're dismissed. And for the rest of us, we're in Luke chapter 18, we're going to begin at verse 31 today and go all the way through Zacchaeus. And if some of you are worried, I'm going to skip a week, okay? Verses 15 through 30, I'm just plain going to skip. But I'm coming back to it in May, okay? So, John Dixon is an Australian author, historian, and apologist, Christian, author, historian, apologist. And in his book, If I Were God, I'd End All Pain, he tells about speaking at a university campus uh, on the theme of the wounds of God, the wounds of God. After his speech, the host opened the floor for questions. And a young Muslim leader stood up And he began to uh, tell the audience how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe would be subjected to forces of his own creation. Um, He said that God would not eat or sleep or go to the toilet, let alone die on the cross. And Dixon opened a dialogue with him that lasted for over 10 minutes the man insisted that the notion of God having wounds was illogical since the creator of causes could not possibly be caused pain by a lesser entity. It was considered outright blasphemy in the Quran. Dixon later wrote In the end, I simply thanked him for demonstrating for the audience the radical contrast between. The Islamic conception of God and uh, what is described in the Bible. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. Jesus Christ died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins. Our God has wounds. That separates Christianity from all world religions in luke eighteen thirty one through forty thirty one through thirty four Jesus predicted his own death. he would be wounded wounded indeed for you and for me. It was not a surprise, it was not a failure for jesus. it was god 's plan from the beginning. Jesus wanted his Disciples to know this and to be ready for this. So I'm going to let's look at Luke chapter 18. We'll start with uh, verse 31. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, We're going to go up, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what He was talking about. So let's have a look. This is the Easter prediction in verses 31 through 34. And in verse 31, we have the identification of the Son of Man. That's a term that Jesus used most often about himself. And we've seen that recently. Uh, we saw that last week and about how the Son of Man would, would be revealed from heaven in lightning uh, when he comes again. Uh, so Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, We're going up to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem, they say, when you go to Jerusalem, you go up. And one of the reasons it's a high place for the Jewish religious faith, because the temple is located there. That's where you go up to meet God. But it also was 2,200 feet above sea level. And the place they are right now is 800 feet below sea sea level. So they're going to walk up 3,000 square feet in 18 miles to get to their destination. We're going up to Jerusalem. Remember, this has been Jesus' destination for quite some time. Let's just see the map. We got a map coming. I was too early on the map that 's my fault, okay We do have one it 's coming you 'll see what exactly what i 'm talking about we 're going up to Jerusalem okay we got I called for the map too early, but there it is so just a reminder uh, if you can see it there 's a tiny little this is how small Israel is if it depends on how close we get to the map but uh, so you see at the top there's the Sea of Galilee that was sort of the area that Jesus ministered most in. And he had a headquarters in Capernaum on the North Shore, the Sea of Galilee. So his ministry was primarily up there. But he would come down for feasts in Jerusalem because all of the Jewish people were to come there for worship on special occasions. So he's been coming south, uh, we've seen for, in our study, for a few weeks. And he is uh, getting close uh, to Jericho. And uh, we're going to meet him there in Jericho as well. Um, And he's saying here, And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And so he's just reminding them that what what God said in Isaiah, what God said in Daniel, what God said in Ezekiel, what God said in Micah, what God said in Malachi, any prophets, it's going to come to pass. And they need to be attuned to that. Um, the term son of man, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. When, when Jesus' critics heard him use the term son of man, it really made them nervous. Because they recognized he was referring to someone from the Old Testament. Someone who would be the Messiah. John uh, Daniel 7. "'In my vision at night I looked,' Daniel said. "'This is in the 8th century B.C., before Jesus. "'And there before me was one like a son of man, "'the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. "'He approached the Ancient of Days,' "'which is a reference for God the Father, "'and was led into his presence.'" He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There's, There's a look at an eternal kingdom that is coming, and the center is the Son of Man. So when Jesus used this term, it was a pretty significant term. Next, he describes uh, what will take place and the suffering that will happen in verses 32 and 33. He, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And so Jesus is just telling them what's coming. This might be difficult. This might be hard. There's going to be pain and suffering for everybody But this is what is coming. You know, the Gentiles are going to be the Romans because the Jewish leaders will hand uh, because they have no authority to execute anyone. So for an execution to take place, it has to happen under the hands of the Romans. And so they're going to turn Jesus over after they arrest him to the Romans. Uh, The Romans would make fun of him while he was under their arrest. They would they would insult him, they would spit on him, um, th- 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 they would flog him or scourge him with a whip uh, uh, that, w- that had uh, metal strips in the, in, the, in the leather so that it would be uh, violent when it, when it was struck. And then they would execute him by crucifixion. Now, Jesus had predicted this already at least three times in the book of Luke. Here's one of them, Luke chapter 9, verse 22. And he said, the Son of Man, there the term is again, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is what he predicted earlier. And here we see explicitly that it's going to be the religious leaders who uh, turn him over. Um, and that he would be killed. And then we see the resurrection, verse 33. On the third day, he will rise again. This is the good news. Uh, this death is not going to win in Jesus' life. Jesus won, and he, when he did, he won victory over sin, over death, and over um, the power of Satan. Jesus won, and he wanted his followers to know what's coming. And uh, he wanted his followers to know that this was an essential part of God's plan, that it's going to be suffering and death, and that's coming. You've got to be ready for it. God would be wounded on our behalf, not defeated. And that's why we're, we're going to be celebrating Easter after over 2,000 years. Because he's alive. But verse 34, we see their understanding. What's going on in the disciples' minds? Look at 34. The disciples did not understand any of this, its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. Do you ever find that you don't hear some things that you hear? Like my sermons. You know, my wife calls it selective hearing when she talks to me and I'm sitting there and I'm listening and she tells me something and I don't remember it. I'm clueless because I didn't listen carefully. But sometimes we don't hear because we deflect negative information. We don't like it, so it doesn't seem like I maybe Jesus really doesn't know what he's talking about here, you know? It's his, the other things. The kingdom is coming. God has some great plans for us. Um, sometimes we receive highly technical information that just kind of goes over our head. And, you know, maybe that's what it was like for the disciples. Um, later they're going to remember. Later they're going to call these things in detail. And, and Jesus is going to, he, He's going this isn't, they're going to be there in about two weeks. John 16, he's going to say this to them in verses 12 and 13, John 16. So this is the night before Jesus was crucified, and Jesus was kind of, he's just pouring into them things that are going to be happening that they need to be aware of. And he says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the Spirit, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. And so he's giving a promise that, that Jesus will send his Holy Spirit after he goes back to heaven. They don't get this. They don't understand what's happening right now, but they, they get this part and they're going to recall later, oh yeah, didn't he say something about that? In Acts chapter 2, then things are going to make sense because in Acts 2, God sends the Holy Spirit on those who believe And then they begin to understand what Jesus meant and what Jesus taught and what Jesus' intentions were. And the Holy Spirit gave them insight into the words of Jesus and called a lot of things into their remembrance. In verses 35 through 43, Jesus encounters a social outcast. And this is the destitute, blind, outsider, verses 35 through 43. The destitute, blind, outsider. So Jesus predicted the Easter uh, resurrection. Now we come to his encounter with people. The setting, verses 35 through 37. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. So Jesus and his disciples are approaching the city there 's a band of people jesus and the his band of brothers are coming and uh, there 's a blind man sitting on the roadside uh, because he 's blind he 's not able to work, and because he 's not able to work he 's very poor, and probably his family even just you got to go out and you got to beg that 's how you do it here and There was a custom in Israel when pilgrims, people who wanted to go to Jerusalem to worship. There was a custom to give alms to the poor. And so people coming to worship, sometimes as they encountered poor people, would give them alms, coins. And so this man is outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus is coming toward him. And um, Verse 36, when he heard the crowd going by, he asked, what's happening? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So there's a big commotion. Uh, Someone is coming. It's like a parade is coming, a huge group of people. Now, Jesus was a very common name in the first century. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus was raised, where his family was. That's where he went to synagogue. And Jesus of Nazareth has gained a great reputation, clear down to Jericho in the southern part of the nation Israel. And so they call out, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now the request is in 38 through 41. So the blind man wants help. He wants help from Jesus. He calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what is he saying? By the way, this is the first time the term the son of David is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. This is different. Um, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, normally he might have been saying, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. No, he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He recognizes his need for mercy way before he recognizes his needs for alms. Uh, He calls him the the Son of David. And um, that's a a really important term in, in in the Bible because Jesus was a descendant of David the promised one who would rule on um, God's throne. Second Samuel chapter 7, let's have a look at that passage. So this is a promise to David. This is about uh, the 10th century before Christ, thousand years before the life of Christ. When your days are over, this is to David, and when you rest with your ancestors, that's a polite way to say when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So kings, especially the kings of Judah, needed to be a descendant of David. Actually, it was for all of Israel, but Israel separates later. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's what separates this descendant from all of the descendants of David. All other kings in Israel are different than this one because he will be on the throne forever. Next slide. Your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the Messiah. This was a promise. God's people look toward this. They're expecting a great king. And by the way, Jesus was Lord of lords and king of kings. But it sure doesn't look like it here, does it? He's just kind of a common man walking the roads, and he's teaching. And so uh, we see in verse 39, th- those uh, who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. So there's a crowd with Jesus, and they're walking down the road, and they're you know, it's sort of like we're on Jesus' team, and they see the guy calling out, don't bother Jesus. You're not important enough for Jesus, okay? So just stay away. And so they they stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. Jesus stopped, verse forty. Let me. um, And he says, "What do you want for me to do for you?" And he said, "Lord, I want to see." He knows enough about Jesus that Jesus is not just a good guy who's a good teacher. He believes Jesus is the one. We don't know how much information he has before this. What his background is with the scriptures. But somehow he's able to identify, he goes for it, that Jesus is the son of David, and he is the one who can heal me. He is the one who can have mercy on me. And he doesn't ask for money. Um, we don't know what this man knows. He's, he's likely heard stories and, you know, heard about Jesus healing people. Maybe heard about Jesus raising someone from the dead. And he connects that with what he knows about the Old Testament. This one, this one, he's the one, the son of David. David. Jesus gives an answer in verse 42. He said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Just like that. Jesus knows what's in his heart. Um, We see this over and over in the Gospels. Jesus knew what was in people's heart. Jesus responded to this man's trust, his faith. Jesus restored his sight. Remember in uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, you know, we've gone back to this over and over again. That's where Jesus announced at his home synagogue that the scripture he read, Isaiah 62, was being fulfilled in their sight. And Jesus would proclaim the good news to the poor. And here's here is a man who is poor. And he would uh, bring freedom for the captives, and he would give recovery for the sight for the blind. And this man needs sight. And he would bring release for the oppressed and he would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Another way to say that is the year of the Lord's grace, a time. And and the the good thing is it wasn't just 365 days. We are in that time yet. And Jesus says your faith has healed you. And the word that Jesus uses for heal here is the one that means to be saved. So he receives his side, he's healed, but Jesus also grants him pardon for his sins and gives him the gift of salvation. Not only uh, was his physical blindness healed, but also his spiritual blindness was healed. Jesus pronounced that he was saved. It It was a healing of the whole person. In verses 43, we see a very important concept in the Bible. I call it the revelation and response. Um, So think about these as key concepts. These are key concepts for you and for me. Verse 43, immediately, this is the blind man, he received his sight and followed Jesus. He becomes a Christ follower, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. So Jesus did a miracle here. God's glory was displayed with supernatural power. That's revelation, revelation from God. And this man responds in his heart. What does he do? He gives back praise to God. That's response. Revelation and response. And immediately this man responded with worship. And not only that, this whole event brought worship in response for the people who were present. Revelation, God reveals himself. God gives us instruction. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to ignore it? Are we going to act like we didn't hear it? Are we going to deflect it? Are we going to think about it and then forget it? What do we do when God reveals something to us? And the response part is to respond back to God. If he gives us instructions, Jerry, I want you to be kind to your wife, okay? I think that's in the Bible, by the way, but Jerry isn't. What am I going to do? Nothing? That has happened, but that's not what he wants. That's not a response that honors him. Following through is what honors him. If he gives instructions in his word, we are to obey them. This is what we call living by faith. Just taking one day at a time, walking, taking a step. This is what God wants me to do. I do it. That's living by faith. That's responding back to God. When we see God's provision, we thank him. When we experience God's love, we thank him. That's worship. When you understand God's mercy, Romans 12, 1, We offer our bodies back to God. That's response. Revelation, God's mercy, response. God, I give you everything. That's worship. Um, When you know God has answered your prayer, say thanks. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands responding back to Jesus. The greatest commandment of the Bible is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. And when we follow, that's what this whole book is about, follow the leader, because he is our leader. And when we follow, it's pleasing to God. It's a way to express worship. It's a way to express love. That's what the blind man did. We come now to chapter 19, um, and we come and meet a... The rich, dishonest outsider. The the, the poor man was an outsider. He was a social outcast. And he did not have a relationship with God. Now he has a relationship with God. Now we come come to another social outcast, but he's on the other end of the spectrum. Um, The setting is verses 1 through 4. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So now we'll do another map. So um, he has now come to Jericho. You can see Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. Jerusalem's about 18 miles away. That's where he's going to die. We're within a couple of weeks right now from his death. But we're not going to get there by Easter because there's a lot of material to cover. So that's okay, though. It's still God's word. We will talk about Easter on Easter. Um, So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now Jericho was a resort city in the first century. Maybe you didn't know that. It's located in a desert. And it's really hot and dry and dusty. Except Jericho is an oasis with trees. And it was a resort town. And Herod built a winter home there. And wealthy people... Wealthy Jewish people, often people from Jerusalem, would come there in the winter if they could afford a second home. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. We we had a dog named Zacchaeus, and we named him because he was a wee little dog. (laughs) And it's just like this man. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, chief tax collector. Not just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. And that meant um, he supervised a whole lot of other tax collectors. There were three regions in the land of Israel that the Romans proclaimed would be the tax center of the nation. There was one in Caesarea on the west coast, One in the north in Capernaum, right off the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had a headquarters. And there was one down here in Jericho in the southern portion of Israel. Um, So uh, Zacchaeus is the guy who collects taxes from all the other tax collectors. He gets a cut. He gets a percentage for himself off of everybody else who collects taxes. He is a wealthy man. Um, This is kind of the early Ponzi scheme, you know, first century Ponzi scheme. And Zacchaeus is right at the top. Zacchaeus is a curious man. This is not usual. This is kind of not how tax collectors acted. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He had heard about Jesus. Whatever Zacchaeus knew about Jesus, there is something in him that is attracted to Jesus. By the way, that still happens today. We have people in our world that are attracted to Jesus or people who are searching. And maybe they're just a next door neighbor, friend at work, and they're They would be delighted if someone would help them to go the next step. And so um, because he was short, he was a wee little man, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So it's like a parade. There's so many people there lining the streets. Jesus is coming. He's got a whole bunch of people, a crowd coming with him, a multitude of people are coming into Jericho. So Zacchaeus climbs this tree because he wants to see Jesus. And um, the encounter is five and six. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your home today. Jesus took notice of Zacchaeus. Jesus is very intentional. Jesus knows what's in his heart. And he looks up and he sees him and he invites him to come down to meet with him. And not only that, he, you know, normally we might say, Zacchaeus, would it be okay if I came over to your house a little bit? No. He says, I must. This is a key uh phrase. It's really a phrase. It's one word in Greek, and it means It is necessary. And what Jesus is saying, this is what God's plan is for me today. It is necessary for me to be with you. This is a very cordial um, way of communication uh, to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is just excited out of his socks. Um, uh, Let me just remind you, uh, it says that Zacchaeus welcomed him gladly he came down and he welcomed him gladly this was exciting for Zacchaeus he, he wanted to see Jesus he's been curious and now Jesus wants to meet him and he Jesus wants to come to my house now I'm going to go to a kind of a negative passage John chapter 2 verses 24 and 25 and um, this takes place uh, early in Jesus's ministry it takes place in Jerusalem and it's a bit of a negative, but here's what I want you to see. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Key concept, he knew all people. Here, it's his critics in Jerusalem. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knew what was in Zacchaeus's heart. The criticism comes, and there was criticism with the, other, the uh, poor destitute outsider. There's criticism with this uh, wealthy, dishonest outsider. Verse 7, All the people saw this and began to mutter, to grumble, to complain. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. I don't think he knows what he's doing. I don't think he understands the way things are done around here. Because rabbis don't hang out with people like that. That's not appropriate. Jesus Zacchaeus was the dreaded tax collector of Jericho and he did not follow God's laws. He was a social outcast. Jesus should have known better. And then we see verse 8, the conversion. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. Now, one of the things we need to think about here is, so Zacchaeus has been in the tree. He just came down and Jesus said, I want to go to your house today. It's necessary that I do this. So we don't know the time here. We don't know how long it's been since they've had this encounter. I would assume that they went to Zacchaeus' home. Zacchaeus is a wealthy man, probably a large group of people, for dinner. And in a conversation at dinner or after dinner, Zacchaeus makes these words. He stood up because somehow he's sitting down. He came down from the tree. You know, some people who are short, they'd have to get on a chair to stand up, but um, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, he's making a proclamation, he's making a decision, a public decision, I give half of my possessions to the poor and I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Um, Jesus knew what was in his heart. Jesus knew about his response. This man has been changed. This man has responded to Jesus' offer. This man has placed his faith in Christ. It's a response to encountering Jesus. And he now wants to follow Jesus. And what he's proclaiming here is what he's going to do now with his new life. He's going to make some changes. Now, he says, I'm going to give up to half of my wealth to the poor. By the way, would you do that for Jesus? Just half of everything, just give it to the poor. Jesus didn't ask him for this. This was his heart response. This was not even required by law in any any way. This is over above. It's kind of an over-the-top response back to Jesus. We have a sense that this is genuine. This isn't a little emotional response that he's going to regret on Monday. This is where his heart is. And then he says, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, and he had. That's how he got there. I will pay back four times the amount. The law required, if you have been dishonest, that you have to pay back the full amount, 100% plus one-fifth. So the law required 120% repayment. This man, Zacchaeus, said four times of wherever I've cheated someone. This is his response back. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus gives this proclamation. He said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. Jesus pronounces that Zacchaeus has been saved by his faith that salvation has come to Zacchaeus in this house so there's a there's a reason why we think it happened in the house okay Uh, because this man too is the son of Abraham now Zacchaeus was probably physically a descendant of Abraham but what Jesus is saying he is he like Abraham was a man of faith Zacchaeus is a descendant of Abraham, the man of faith, and he too is a man of faith. You remember in uh, Luke 15, there was three parables about lost things? And in verse 10, uh, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, there is rejoicing in heaven by the angels over one sinner who repents. There was a celebration right then when Zacchaeus turned to become a follower of Jesus when he he placed his faith in Christ. I had the unique opportunity yesterday afternoon in my office to share the good news with a young woman. And I believe that there was rejoicing in heaven during our time in that meeting by the angels over the celebration of one person who had repented. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek. This was Jesus' purpose. This is what the whole theme of the book of Luke is is about. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. That's exactly what happened with the with the blind man who was destitute he was an outsider he was an outcast he was outside of having a relationship with God Jesus stopped for him he was intentional in pursuing him Jesus was following uh, God's mission Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem it wasn't another road he was on he was on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill God's will as he went he encountered people who were curious or searching, who needed God, and he was Jesus was intentional to find them. He, he engaged with Zacchaeus. Um, he was very intentional. You know what? And that's exactly God's heart. God is searching for people who want to be connected with him. Um. In the 6th century B.C., Ezekiel chapter 34 says this. God speaks, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. This is a, a, he's speaking as if he's the shepherd. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. Those who don't need God, no matter how they look in the world's standards, Those who don't need God, he says, I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. God is a shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. And he is searching for people to get connected uh, with him. And Jesus has called us to carry out his mission. That's why we're here. 2,000 years later, to seek and to save that which was lost. He wants us to be intentional about helping people connect with God. So my question is, what are you doing to be intentional about helping people connect with God? What are you doing to spend time with people who don't know Jesus yet? Sometimes it's really easy because it's our workplace, it's our neighborhood, some of our friends, We have those relationships. It's about being intentional about pursuing um, people who have not, who are are outside the faith, who have not yet placed their faith in, in Christ. Who are you praying for right now that you would have the opportunity to share the good news with? Who are you praying for that God would open their heart to hear? that the time would be right? How do you schedule your time? Do you make time? Are are people who don't have a relationship with Christ yet, are they important enough to fit into your schedule? And I get you're busy, I'm busy, you're busy, and and we all have Christian friends and they're important and we have community and we need to be in community and we need to be in groups, and yet God doesn't want it to end there. He wants us to be pursuing intentionally relationships with people who don't know Him yet so that sometime we may have the opportunity. Or maybe it's inviting them to come with you to the bridge. Maybe, and, and maybe through the bridge, God will help them connect uh, with Him. Colossians uh, 4, uh, 5, and 6 say this, "...be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders." That's the person who doesn't know Christ, the outsider. And he's saying, Be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't be flippant. Don't take it for granted. Don't ignore. Let your conversation always be full of grace, not legalism, not being jun- judgmental. That's the, one of the biggest reasons why people aren't interested in God today because they think Christians are judgmental. Is that true? Do they just think about what you oppose? Seasoned with salt, that is being careful, winsome, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Um, Do you know how to share your faith? Do you know how to share the good news? Maybe you've heard of this story. There was a lost dog, and the owner put up a reward uh, on a sign, and it said, lost dog. The big reward. He has only three legs. He is blind in his left eye. He's missing a right ear. His tail was broken off. He was neutered accidentally by a fence. He is almost deaf, and he answers by the name Lucky. That dog is not Lucky. He was lucky to have an owner who loved him. He was lucky... His owner wanted him back. You know, that's our God. He wants us. And he wants people who don't know him yet. And he's already bought them. He's already paid the price. And he wants us to help people connect with God. He wants to seek and to save that which has been lost. Do you care? What God wants. Let's stand and let's pray. Thank you, Father, uh, for Jesus' heart to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you that Jesus was wounded for our sakes. That he experienced intense suffering for us. That he died on a cruel cross to pay for our sins. He did this out of love for us. And we respond by saying, thank you, God. We don't deserve it. We understand it's grace. We understand that it's a gift. Father, once we were outside of the faith, we were outsiders now we have the privilege to be in a relationship with you not because how smart we are not because of our educational level or who our friends are or who our parents were it's because of Jesus Father um, give us compassion for people like Jesus give us a heart may we be intentional people about sharing the good news. You have revealed yourself to us, and we are to respond. Help us just day by day to walk with you and to be followers of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.